Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 14, Pandemic Mind, Pandemic Body. So today's episode is inspired by one of my listeners who uh, was talking about how, you know, this brain fog she's been having. And, you know, we all get have moments of this. And she's in her mid-50s, and she said, you know, is this because of menopause and hormones? And I said, well, yeah, that can happen in menopause. Uh, and also happens to men, you know, as they age with their own, you know, hormones changing. And although I've been hearing this a lot, and from people of all ages, you know, you know, the iGens or Gen Zs, millennials, people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, a lot of people are talking about this kind of general brain fog. And there's a reason. And the reason is our country here in the United States and the world, we have all experienced trauma. Now, and people can often confuse trauma with big stress. And it's also important to know that one person's trauma is not necessarily another person's trauma. But the real true definition of trauma is uh, when something overrides the mind's ability to cope. It's also important before we go on to realize that trauma, experiencing a trauma, which again, the whole country and world has experienced now from this. Okay, Trauma does not mean traumatized. We can experience a trauma without identifying with it to the point that it kind of changes the essence of who we are. Also, as we are touching on trauma, uh, simply as related to the pandemic today, I still want to do my disclaimers that trauma can and does often rewire the brain. And so and people can end up, you know, feeling stuck, being stuck. And this is definitely... Um, a situation where you'd want to seek out professional help. And uh, so I want to do my disclaimer is today's episode is not meant in any way to take the place of anybody seeking out professional treatment. Simply to explain during this pandemic, explain and validate why some of us may be kind of walking around a little bit like zombies. And then we're going to address um, the part about the pandemic body because the mind-body connection is a thing which isn't different while we're going through a pandemic. Of course, add in there the uh, racial riots going on to the just horrific murder of George Floyd and during a pandemic. And is it any big surprise that so many of us are walking around, you know, just in this zombie fog? So this summer I'm teaching a trauma class for the Community College of Vermont which I've, I've taught before, and one of the books I use is by Rachel Goldsmith Turrell called Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and P- PTSD, and it's about practices for recovery and resilience, and it's really, really good, obviously. I wouldn't have chosen this one. So Rachel starts off um, talking about the full range of experiences that can arise after a trauma, which include depression, anxiety, shock, grief, anger, numbness, hopelessness, shame, sleep problems, betrayal, alienation, and guilt. And then she goes on to say that trauma can impact how we think by disrupting our attention and concentration, by shading our thoughts with negative judgments and expectations, by creating patterns of self-blame and self-criticism. It can also lead us to avoid things that trigger anxiety or painful memories, and it can influence how we interact with other people. So I think there are you know, plenty of people walking around, you know, the good old U.S. of A. in the world, not, you know, fully getting how huge this is. Like, if you ask us cognitively, we can answer. Sure, I mean, 55 years old, I've never even experienced anything close to this magnitude of a pandemic. And then again, add in, you know, the racial riots. And we can, we can you know, spit that back to somebody. But I think that a lot of us don't fully get this, the massive, uh, you know, emotion and fear-based thinking that's that's been going on. And for some of us, it's a slow burn, right? Because we're still doing our lives and kids and partners and jobs are dealing without having a job, whatever. We're still like, we're still kind of get up every morning, we keep doing it and not fully realizing the toll that this, that this has taken on us. So I think part of this is due to sort of the old view of trauma, which was more event-based. 
not that it necessarily had to be one event, could be, but it could be, you know, happen multiple times. But of course, the top two that people would probably kind of voice quickly would be someone who's experienced and or witnessed, you know, horrible war atrocities. And uh, also someone who's been sexually violated, um, assaulted uh, anywhere along the spectrum. And then obviously there's lots of other things, car accidents, natural disasters, you know, lots of other things. But it's been kind of thought of and viewed that way. as kind of event based. And now, you know, complex trauma is now thankfully kind of changed the perspective on that and uh, has included, you know, sort of long term situations that can have the same or very similar effect. So I'm going to rattle the list off for you so you can hear that some of the things are now considered to have um, just as severe and sometimes more severe, it depends on our wiring, right, you know, effects as, you know, what was considered to be more of kind of event-based trauma. So here we go. Emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, child emotional neglect and child physical neglect, abuse in educational, religious, incarceration, or work settings, intimate partner violence, uh, physical assault, we already said rape, uh, harassment, stalking, loss of job, uh, major financial hardships and poverty, legal difficulties, accidents and disasters. We talked about combat trauma, military sexual trauma, grief and loss, illness and disease. Again, we talked about war, genocide and refugee trauma, discrimination, terrorism, kidnapping, being held hostage and torture, community violence, police violence, robberies and muggings, racism, sexism, bullying, homophobia. And then she gets into the microaggressions. So she says subtle automatic insults or biased behavior involving racism, sexism, bullying, and homophobia, political repression and discrimination, institutional betrayal, traumas perpetrated by an institution and individuals who depend on that institution including the failure to prevent or respond supportively to traumas. And then the last one, uh, she, she talks about systematic trauma, the ways that institutions, cultures, and communities exacerbate or mitigate trauma and people's responses. So then Rachel says, you know, that it can be surprising to learn that traumas such as relationship conflicts, relationships ending, losing a job, financial worries, and emotional abuse can lead to mental health problems that are just as severe or more severe as the effects of life-threatening danger or sexual trauma. And this is because we are all wired differently. So again, one's person, one person's trauma might be another person's big stress. Remember the difference. Trauma is when the, the brain, mind, the mind's ability is overridden. The ability to cope is overridden. So it's going to matter, you know, how we're wired and we all process things differently. And this is good to this is good to kind of be aware of because this is why it's so so important um, and also part of mindfulness, right? Not not to judge ourselves, not to judge these feelings. We feel how we feel. Feelings are not right or wrong. We feel how we feel, and not to judge this. So I'll also share with you. I have an online class going on right now uh, this summer, and a different class. And just in one week, over one assignment. I had, well, I had more than three, but uh, three students asking for uh, extensions for the assignment, which, of course, I gave them directly due to the racial riots. Uh, two of the three, one of them had a partner who was a police officer and was doing overtime at night because uh, in, a, in a city where, you know, they're lighting things on fire, just, you know, highly dangerous things. And another student is on the same class. She was a she. She's a police officer, and she was sent over to you know moved around all over the place. They uh, everybody's got kids, okay. Um, never mind another one. I've actually there one, two, three. So three more. Uh, one of them, sorry, another one. Uh, besides the two police officers, uh, had racial riots going. She was from a city in Texas, right in her backyard. Three little kids at home, you know, could touch out the window. Things going on out there. So just imagine. Just imagine the hyper vigilance going on. 
you know, the two police officers, well, the one married to a police officer, the other one, she's a police officer. And then, and then the student I have uh, with her three little kids with this going right outside in her backyard, she might have had to, to leave. So obviously they got their extensions. Um, and then uh, just before that, okay, same class. I had students who are nurses or medical, I should actually, I don't know technically they're nurses. I'm going to say medical people because I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, they're in hospitals taking care of people. And they've been on, you know, doing 10, 12, 14 hour shifts because of the pandemic. And, you know, also with, with kids and partners and, and jobs or again, some of them, no jobs and put, throw all that together. The pandemic and all the all this, you know, horrible violence and hatred in the air, and it's it's just so absolutely overwhelming. And I I just truly don't think we are f- fully getting it because we're in survival mode right now. We're we're trying, you know, we're getting up every day, putting our shoes on, and going through the motions, giving kids juice boxes, teaching them online, you know, dealing with partners, figuring out how to get the dog to the vet whenever but when they're close you know, kind of trying to do some, you know, some levity things, maybe, I know, splurging on Chinese once in a while to try, we're just like, we're in survival mode. And what's important to know about survival mode from a learning standpoint, you know, I'm, of course, I've, I've got the college uh, idea in my head, but it doesn't matter. All of us, we're learning all day, every day. We could be, you know, long past that stage and you're out in your job learning new things or learning new things from relationship, you know, learning, however, we're talking about learning. Little kids, big kids, you know, teenagers, young adults, older adults, seasoned adults, anybody. The thing is, survive, we kind of, very simplistic way, separate the brain into kind of the two parts, very simplistic. We've got survival brain, which has also been labeled trauma brain. We'll say survival brain. Um, and learning brain, okay? So learning brain, ideally, doesn't mean that there's not stress because life has stress, you know, kind of daily, right? Regular stress. We're cranking along in a classroom or at work or out in the world learning things in whatever ways. The learning brain will soak up and love all the new information under you know, sort of regular circumstances. Enter big stress and trauma. Okay. And remember, they're different. Big stress and or trauma and survival brain takes over. And obviously, since the species wants to uh, you know, continue Survival brain will trump learning brain 100% of the time, which means if we're in this active survival mode, nothing, if or if anything, a little tiny bit might might be getting in, probably nothing. And what is getting in is probably, you know, very um, scrambled, you know, scrambled. Okay, so the reason that being in survival brain mode uh, has us walking around like fogged over zombies is because the limbic system is in full tilt. And the amygdala, which we mentioned in earlier episodes, my favorite part of the brain, is this little almond-shaped, or these, actually two of them, this almond-shaped uh, part of the brain that's in the limbic system and f- kind of flips the switch on the threat circuit. So if you want to go know kind of a fun party trick, okay, the amygdala plural has an, ends with an A-E, by the way. If you want to know a fun party trick with kind of explaining to someone where the amygdala are, because it's it's hard to say, it's, it's hard to sh- actually show someone unless you have a you know one of those plastic brain models, because uh, it's in the middle, or they're in the middle. So picture uh, laser beams going through both eyes, and then picture one laser beam going through your right ear, right out the left ear where those laser beams intersect are where your amygdala are. Another part of the limbic system is the thalamus. And the thalamus is kind of like grand central station of the brain because all incoming sensory information, sight, hearing, all of it is going through the the, uh, thalamus. It's kind of, and it kind of like a picture subway trains in New York because that's my city you know, kind of coming in and out. And the thalamus is kind of in charge of which trains go in and which trains go out and kind of sends them whatever direction they're supposed to go. So think of how important the thalamus is. And actually there's one sense, I got to re- regroup here. There's four of them. One sense that uh, sensory stimuli did, that uh, do not go through the thalamus is the sense of smell, the olfactory sense that goes straight to the amygdala. So just kind of like a psychology or neuroscience fun fact 
if you've ever, you know, felt like you smelled first grade, you probably did. And so now, you know, of course, you know, the amygdala flips the switch for the threat circuit. And I'm heard, I'm sure probably most of you out there have heard of, you know, the flight or fl- fight or flight response, right? Which then kind of morphed into um, fight, flight, or freeze. And now people are out there talking about fight, flight, freeze, or fog. Otherwise known as, you know, pandemic brain, zombie mode. And yet another important, you know, key player on the limbic system team is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is where long-term memory is stored for the most part. Brain obviously works together. The hippocampus is the primary headquarters for long-term memory. And with any kind of trauma, uh, long-term memory gets very jarbled. Memory gets very, very jarbled. And somebody may have crystal clear memories, but they may not all be in, in like the proper time sequence. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that, that the memory is affected by, by trauma. So one culprit in this, which is actually meant to, um, you know, be something in place to keep us alive is the stress hormone cortisol. So cortisol, when it's released, you know, by the, when the threat circuit sounds off, keeps us more vigilant, hypervigilant of any potential danger. You know, we were talking about the, somebody, you know, overseas at war or somebody about to be sexually assaulted or, or whatever's going on, racial riots in the backyard. Okay. This is meant to keep us, you know, on, in this, in this sort of state of hypervigilance. So we are, our senses are more finely attuned, better able to protect ourselves and our children. Okay. Better eyesight, better hearing, can hear a pin drop in Kansas when, when we're in this mode. And again, this is meant to keep us alive and at our best, kind of like in short, shortstop stance, you know, ready to, you know, go after that ball and grab it kind of thing. And cortisol is meant to be in the body for about three hours at the most, because think about any kind of, you know, dangerous, threatening event, the event itself, even if it's a long, you know, like some, like a long-term issue, the event itself, the actual, somebody's about to be mugged or, you know, whatever it is, is usually over within three hours. And what's, what's happens with trauma um, in this, you know, sort of conditioned fear-based thinking is that the cortisol remains in the body for much, much longer. And when that happens, what was meant to keep us alive actually kind of turns on the body and becomes um, kind of like a neuron killer, healthy, healthy neurons. I think of Rambo. I know it's dating myself, but I don't care. I'm 55. Happy to be so. Think of the alternative, right? So I picture like, you know, like a, an automatic, you know, weapon, and it goes after especially the hippocampus. So um, there's a lot of, you know, memory fragmentation, memory loss, um, largely due to cortisol going after healthy neurons. Okay, so we've established that the limbic system is the big enchilada here with being sort of the, you know, headquarters of our emotions and also processing our fear and flipping the switch on the flight, flight, you know, uh, threat circuit and also cortisol whipping through our bodies. And that was our wonderful golden retriever Giovanni. And just a little example of the startle response, you know, speaking of cortisol and also involved with, as far as our kind of consciousness and sense of self and processing our environment is the prefrontal cortex, the medial and dorsal prefrontal cortex. And these are also really important to understand because we're talking about being this pandemic thing, right? Complex uh, trauma for some and big stress for others. And these parts of the brain are responsible for kind of having a grip on our own awareness of ourself as well as our surroundings. So Bessel van der Kolk is a leading expert in the field of trauma and he has some good stuff out there. One of his books is called The Body Keeps Score, which I actually used in one of my classes. And he talks about, um, you know, what is what is the brain doing when we have nothing particular on our mind? And the answer is, it turns out that we pay attention to ourselves. And this default state, he calls it the default state ne- network or DSN. The default state activates the brain areas that work together 
to create your sense of self. So he talks about this, like he calls it the Mohawk of awareness. So I can't help thinking, when I picture a Mohawk, I can't help thinking about some poor, unfortunate freshman hockey player, you know, after initiation weekend. So here comes uh, a quick little brainy part here. So the Mohawk of self-awareness, picture this kind of going right up and over the head, starting from the front of the brain, consists of the orbital prefrontal cortex, the medial prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate, the posterior cingulate, and the insula. And he says that in individuals with histories of chronic, chronic trauma, the same regions show sharply decreased activity, making it difficult to register internal states and assessing the personal relevance of incoming information. All right, so in addition to the brain being, you know, just incredibly interesting, right? You know, I could talk about it all day long and I have a bored minute, like I mentioned. It also has this kind of immediate validation thing going on because if something's, you know, kind of going on in the brain, then it's kind of inherently not our fault. It does not mean that it's not our responsibility, you know, to kind of, you know, take the steps that we can to, you know, alleviate things that are not working for us and make shifts and changes. But the actual what's going on is not our fault. Uh, When Bessel goes on to talk about um, specifically some research he did with uh, some patients he had that had severe early life trauma, he said it was startling as there was almost no activation of any of the self-sensing areas of the brain. These are uh, PTSD patients that he had. He said the medial prefrontal cortex, anterior cingulate, the parietal cortex, and the insula did not light up at all on the brain scan. The only area that showed a slight activation was the posterior cingulate, which is responsible for basic orientation in space. Bessel goes on to say that there could really be only one explanation for these results, and that is that in response to the trauma itself and in coping with the dread that persisted long afterward, that these patients had learned to shut down the brain areas that transmit the visceral feelings and emotions that accompany and define terror. Yet in everyday life, those same brain areas are responsible for registering the entire range of emotions and sensations that form the foundation of our self-awareness, our sense of who we are. And he says, what we witnessed here was a tragic adaptation. In an effort to shut off terrifying sensations, they also deadened their capacity to feel fully alive. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, it's therefore no huge surprise that with the disappearance of medial prefrontal activation, you know, this can explain why so many traumatized people lose their sense of purpose and direction. And of course, this is really important to understand anyway, because we're walking around with pandemic stress, right? Pandemic brain. We're in the fog, walking around with pandemic brain, sometimes out of it, zombie mode, forgetting things, missing appointments, you know, trying to struggle with that person's name was right in front of us, maybe the dog's name, right? We're just, we're really out of it right now. And this is also important because just out in the adult world, you know, approximately 40% of all grownups have experienced some sort of trauma even before the pandemic. Now, that 40% will vary depending on where you read that, obviously, but it's a lot. And so it's very important to get this because now that we have this complex thing going on with the pandemic and now racial riots, you know, across the country, this can flip the switch on earlier traumatic experiences that happened, you know, during childhood and, you know, teenagerhood. If you remember, uh, way back in the beginning of this episode, we talked about, you know, more chronic situations creating complex trauma. And we, you know, we rattled off quite a list there, you know, major financial hardships and poverty, intimate partner violence, legal difficulties, discrimination. We had uh, kidnapping, being held hostage, torture, community violence, police violence, right? We had homophobia, sexism, and racism, And we can also remember uh, the relationship to scarcity that we've talked about in different episodes, right? You know, um, where people uh, 
when they've experienced complex or you know trauma as children in any kind of way, you know, scarcity can go right back to a scarcity of not having enough, right? Not having enough money, um, worried about having enough as far as a job. We might have had a scarcity, such as myself growing up in an addicted household, a scarcity of honor, right? Scarcity of love, scarcity of positive self-esteem. And there can certainly also be, you know, a scarcity of equality and justice. And I've been, I share with you that I've been listening to a podcast by a man uh, named Resma Menikin, and he's a trauma specialist. And he's also the author of My Grandmother's Hands. I'll tell you, this, this gentleman is amazing. He talks about trauma becoming generational, which of course brings in epigenetics or the merge of, you know, genes, experience, and environment. And he talks about now this pandemic has hit black people, he refers to as bodies of culture, very, very hard because of this generational trauma that um, has become decontextualized by time. You know, um, saying that historical trauma, generational trauma, persistent institutional trauma, personal trauma that's happened as a child, teenager, and adult, that time has a way of, of kind of removing the context from this. And Resma says that when, you know, this trauma is left constricted and it becomes decontextualized, that we, you know, shape ourselves around that. Resma talks about this generational trauma, you know, being housed in the body. And he says, for bodies of culture who have experienced this, you know, racism-related trauma for generation after generation after generation, I believe he says 14 um, generations of, of racism-related trauma, that it, it just it becomes housed in the body because time has decontextualized this, that bodies of culture are walking around, you know, not really, you know, um, able to fully describe that. It's this, it's this, this feeling that just kind of sits there. Resma says that, you know, we, we, it's almost like we're walking around with a kind of braceness, you know, that's been infected by the white body as the supreme standard. And Resma says when. You know, uh, when he's out at a speaking engagement and he says, bodies of culture, he said, and a black woman, an indigenous woman, approach him after his talk and say, you know, thank him. Just thank you for talking, explaining how this energy sits there, this generational um, trauma and how they've been walking around feeling like they were crazy. And, you know, feeling crazy, just not knowing what this feeling was that they've been walking around with. And then he says he responds to them by saying, you are not defective. You are not defective. And when he does so, he says, um, there's, a, you know, just immediate, immediate tears. And this is obviously shame. And there's nothing more toxic than the feeling of shame and nothing more healing than releasing it. And Resma uh, brings up cortisol, actually, like we've been talking about, and, you know, his mother's levels of cortisol. And he also talks about how this affects a baby, which is spot-on accurate. And he says that, you know, his black body being brought into a world where the white body, you know, is perceived as the supreme standard is in and of itself traumatic. And of course, Resma is spot on accurate here because what, you know, the pregnant mother takes in obviously goes straight to the baby. And this isn't different with stress and cortisol being secreted in the bloodstream. And this has me thinking of, um, Gabor Mate, the author of in the realm of hungry ghosts and, uh, a leading expert in the field of addiction. He's absolutely amazing. And kind of one of his main themes, if not the main theme, is that the high majority of addiction 
stems from trauma. And then he recalls, it tells a story about when uh, he was an infant and his mother later shared with him that when the Nazis were in the process of occupying Hungary, that Gabor was crying and crying and crying, just wouldn't let up and crying, crying, crying as a baby. And his mother called the doctor and said, I don't know what's wrong with him. You know, something's wrong with him. He won't stop crying. You know, please, please come and see what's wrong with Gabor. And the doctor responded by saying, it probably isn't anything, you know, physiologically speaking, because he said, all of my babies are crying. They're crying because of the stress of the Nazis. And of course, when I mean, when I mean not physiological, I mean not something like an ear infection or the flu, because stress obviously does manifest physiologically. Hence, you know, the word somatic coming from the Latin meaning soma body, right? Definitely does manifest. And baby Gabor was responding to, you know, the rise in stress and cortisol levels. He's picking it up as a little baby infant. This also ties in beautifully with, with what Resma was saying about epigenetics, you know, and generational trauma, you know, um, crossing over to the next generation, next generation until we're not even aware of why we're walking around feeling how we're feeling. And then enter the pandemic, flipping the switch on all these earlier experiences. And it's, again, no wonder why uh, so many people walking around out there are in the state of, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and definitely brain fog. All right, so this is a good segue into what cortisol does to the body, right? Because we're talking about pandemic brain, pandemic mind, and now we're going to talk about pandemic body. Okay, so now just remember we said cortisol, which is secreted by the adrenal glands, a little brain fun facts for you today and body fun facts for you today. It's meant to be in the body for three hours because most you know, immediate crises or threats are over within three hours. So after that, you know, the parasympathetic nervous system, you know, usually kicks in, heart rate goes back to normal, breathing goes back to normal, body kind of, you know, generally gets back to this homeostasis state and all things are good. When that doesn't happen though, and the threat continues, whether it's really continuing, you know, externally, or we are creating threats in our head, right, with the worry circuit, just all the what-if thinking, what-if, 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 the cortisol and adrenaline also stay running through our, you know, they stay flowing through our blood, and it continues to affect the body. So what is meant to keep us alive ends up destroying healthy neurons and, has additional effects in the body, such as affecting our glucose levels. So if anybody's been, you know, putting on weight through this quarantine, you know, affectionately referred to it as the quarantine 15, um, part of the reason could be due to cortisol. And of course, you know, having, for some of us who have had all this time on our hands, obviously boredom, that's not even so deep. We, a lot of people eat when, you know, when we're bored and then, of course, there's emotional eating that also comes with stress, that what-if eating. And we reach for the carbos, uh, you know, the leftover Chinese food, cold pizza, whatever somebody just baked. And uh, so that emotional eating piece, reaching for the carbos is actually chemical, too, because carbos have this in- initial kind of uh, bring, us, bring us down with the anxiety reaction also. So, of course, the mind-body connection is a thing anyway. So what we're talking about is the pandemic mind-body connection. So if it's not enough that, you know, this cortisol flowing through the body is causing, you know, decreased concentration, you know, irritability, um, and these other things, it's now also causing weight gain, which is generally right around the middle, midsection, right, and also the upper back. Too much cortisol can also cause acne. Uh, we can become more, we can become bruised more easily and cortisol can actually, actually cause us to heal at a slower rate. 
too much cortisol also raises, you know, blood pressure. And if you're already at risk for that, it can make it worse, right? Which can obviously lead to cardiac problems, strokes, things like that. So too much cortisol is not good. So, you know, as far as talking about the pandemic, you know, the weight gain, and this affects metabolism. So once we have this sort of, you know, high level cortisol thing happening due to the chronic you know, stress and anxiety due to the pandemic, it can become a very, very difficult, you know, cycle to break because our body gets used to, you know, cr- creating the extra sugar levels and all this and, and, um, and overall fatigue. And it's like, it's just kind of like a vicious cycle. And also <clears throat> I've heard, been hearing a lot about, you know, sleep patterns disrupted. My students have been talking a whole lot about their sleep patterns just completely screwed up. You know, they'll go to bed at 10, get up at two, be up for two hours, go back to sleep. And then end up, some have been staying at one student told me fairly recently, he just can't, he has this thing with 4am, he's up to 4am, then he sleeps half the day, then his day's gone. Um, and so, uh, though obviously there can be other reasons for this and, you know, mental health plays into it and everything else. Um, cortisol alone can also mess with our sleep cycles and then, you know, and end up uh, leading to insomnia. And then, of course, let's say whether it's coming from cortisol or somewhere else, we're saying the whole pandemic thing. Okay, so it's sleep sleep cycles then, if they're messed up for a long enough time and become, you know, roll into chronic sleep deprivation, that feeds this whole cycle even more because chronic sleep deprivation um, exacerbate most of the symptoms we've already talked about, right? So it messes with the hormones ghrelin and lectin, which are the hunger hormones, and how we feel satiated or how we feel hungry. Uh, too much or sleep deprivation mimics signs of aging, weakens the immune system, which is certainly not something we need during a pandemic, uh, and can also, you know, roll, roll right into symptoms of the of depression, even for somebody who wasn't depressed. If they become chronically sleep deprived, um, they can begin to show signs of depression as well. And just reminding all of you from the last, uh, or two, I forget, I think two, two episodes ago now, that if we can start to shift our stress mindset from one that's negative and thinking, oh, no, I'm doomed, I'm going to have a heart attack at you know, whatever age, shift that over to realizing that stress is really pointing us into the direction of what's important to us, usually. What is important to us? And when we can change the stress response into a challenge response. Instead of I'm stressed, I am challenged with whatever project or finding a new job or reaching out to this one or challenged with um, finding professional treatment for myself or my child, challenged with da 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 And also to change our words because words are so powerful, as we all know. And instead of um, you know, telling ourselves, because our cells are listening, I'm stressed about this. If you tell yourself that enough, of course, you're going to feel stress. Instead of saying, I'm stressed about this, we can change our words, even in a fake it till you make it kind of way. Fake it till you make it, right? I'm excited about, you know, meeting this new person, this new interview, this new job. I'm excited about talking with my boss about coming back to work. I'm excited about and change those words will really, really help. So uh, one thing that can can help with all of this um, is to listen to the previous podcast on the stress response. To have a positive stress, learn to have a positive stress response will help significantly with this, right? Because the mind is in control, in control here. Thoughts come first and feelings come second. So in no way am I saying it easy, that it's easy at all. And remember the disclaimer that none of this is meant to be in place of professional treatment. And at the same time, if we can learn, first of all, realize that thoughts come first and feelings come second, we can realize um, that we can take charge of our thinking and become the boss of our brain. You know, as far as a sleep situation, I realize, you know, with now we have five young adult kids. For those of you out there, you know, kind of surviving through this whole thing with small children, maybe even had a baby during the middle of it. I realized trying to take a nap might be, you know, a pipe dream. You might have a better chance of, you know, landing on the Mars and uh, landing on Mars and colonizing it for all of us. But if it's possible, if you have a partner 
sister, brother, mother, somebody who can, you know, even take an hour and just an hour or even an older child, a teenager who you can be, you can trust to just take, you know, a small time to take a nap or even just rest your eyes. That is one way to help. And here comes, you know, the biggest one exercise is definitely the number one. You just, you can't go wrong. Even if, you know, you think, oh no, I haven't exercised in so long. Oh no. You know, and it can be very, very difficult for someone who has not exercised in a long time to kind of get up off the couch or, you know, out of the chair and get going it can be very, very difficult. And you can do it, especially if it's hard for you, you know, team up, ally with somebody who also wants to get out there. Even if you just start walking, it's huge for the mind and body. Um, exercise is gigantic for keeping our memory, you know, you know, very healthy and alert, you know, all the way through our older years. Um, obviously, you can't control for, you know, uh, getting dealt that card for dementia or Alzheimer's or something. But let's just say that's not the case. Memory can really, 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 really be enhanced um, by exercise. And also, even with the genetic wild card, though there are no promises, no guarantees, especially with, with an early onset type gene for something, then uh, that can be more challenging. But even if it's in the family, exercising consistently can actually prevent um, Alzheimer's or, de or dementia. Any type, there's a, so many kinds of dementia. Um, yeah, it can ab absolutely keep you solid with um, your cognition. Uh, as far as the mind-body connection, let's say pandemic mind-body connection, a couple of foods to eat that we know for a fact, empirically tested, that help keep our memory solid. Again, we can't control for genetics with this, um, but for, for you know the high majority of the time, eating lots and lots of blueberries is going to be very, very helpful in preventing um, memory loss and also walnuts. Exercise obviously increases metabolism, which will help with the quarantine 15 that many of us are struggling with, okay? Uh, and exercise also gives us energy. So if any of you are feeling low energy and fatigued, by this pandemic, kind of pushing yourself to get out the door that first time um, will hopefully lead to a second time and a third time, and it gets easier and easier and easier. We get we gain energy, and it's it's all I, I run and ski, love to ski. I'm a totally addicted to skiing, and also running. And you'll find that once you start running, or if it's walking, once you get into a routine, you get to a point where you f you don't feel right if you don't walk or you don't run. And this is, this is when you know you're on, you're kind of on your way. And the good thing about, you know, getting into this, this routine and you have to like it because if you don't like what you're doing, you know, willpower only carries us so far. You have to want to, to do whatever exercise it is you're doing. So if you don't picture yourself as a gym rat, don't do that, you know, find something else that works for you. And uh, this will help with the belly fat and the energy thing, we get energy from exercising, not just the actual day we exercise, but if, if this has become a nice, healthy habit, <clears throat> then we be, we have more energy overall. And remember that the sleep, chronic sleep deprivation thing also feeds into weight gain. So we want to get the sleeping patterns back together. So some tips there are <clears throat> to limit caffeine, especially you know, anytime after two o'clock, really, you'll see that written differently everywhere, but it depends on your own body because some people's bodies are not as sensitive to caffeine as others. So you'll know that yourself. Um, generally after two is a good time to kind of take a break from any caffeine and certainly limit the screen time a couple hours before you go to bed because um, you stay away from the screen because even if uh we're watching something that's relatively tame, some kind of, you know, light and comfortable show. The brain is still wide awake. The brain is thinking, okay, I need to figure this out. I need to figure this out. Checking a text, even the brain, you know, automatically wants to read it, figure it out. And then our, then it goes off into a, you know, a million different ways processing it. So to completely unplug all the drugs, just unplug the drugs, the phone, the TV, everything. And, um, and go to sleep. And here's the thing, by just 
sort of getting back into gear with a regulated sleep pattern is going to solve quite a few of these problems. The mind-body connection is real. And the pandemic mind-body connection is certainly very real. So everything is kind of connected to everything else like dominoes. So the weight, the sleeping, the irritability, the you know difficulty focusing, um, you know the brain fog and not being able to remember things and losing keys and everything else is all related. You know, and as, as we've said before through the episodes, is you know to not you know strive for that bar of perfection, which none of us none of us can reach anyway. So there's no point in trying, and to to kind of have that you know progress, not perfection attitude realizing that once we have the awareness, you know, we give ourselves a huge pat on the back. Okay, I'm now aware. I am definitely struggling with pandemic mind body, pandemic mind, pandemic body. I'm struggling with this. Everything I just heard on this, or most of the things I just heard on this podcast episode is like happening for me. So now I'm aware and I want to get it into gear here and just realize that any step in the right direction is a good one, is a good one and give yourself a huge pat on the back. And one thing will lead to another will lead to another to get yourself back on track. And sort of another big tip um, is to, because the days tend to run together, right? One into the other. It feels like Groundhog's Day. Same thing again, teaching the kids online, you know, waking up worried about my job if I'm going to go back to work or I am working online while they're trying to learn online and, you know, whatever it is. And realizing realizing that one day running into the other isn't healthy either. And the brain was used to a routine before the world closed, right? Before the world closed. And so we now have to put things in place that the brain knows the day is over. It can be any kind of ritual. It can be, you know, we have dinner, then we read a book to the child or whatever it is, whatever works for you with, with your life stage and kids at home. We have to kind of force that now and create, you know, markers throughout the day that um, start the day, you know, kind of middle of the day with, you know, lunch and uh, some recreation time in the middle, whatever. And definitely there need there needs to be a routine for the day ending, whatever that looks like in your in your home and in your family. There needs to be a shutoff time at night when, you know, draw a line in the sand when everybody's technology is off, you know. The th- you know, so the, there's like a wind down time. And then the next day, there needs to be a startup routine as well. The brain needs that to know what's happening. In fact, it's very important to get dressed in the morning, which I know would you know sound ridiculous pre-pandemic. But now in the pandemic, that's not so ridiculous because it gets so easy to just stay in our jammies or sweatpants when we are jumping onto a Zoom meeting for work. And as long as we have you know, we're dressed nicely from the top up. No one knows. That's not good for the mind, though. Pandemic mind um, gets kind of stuck in that. And if we, you know, haven't kind of showered, just run a brush through our hair or whatever, uh, we're not going to feel as good as if we actually got dressed as if we were going to work. Showered, got dressed, you know, shave if that's what you do, makeup if that's what you do. Do that like you would if you were going into the office or school or whatever you're doing. Um, and you will feel a whole lot better. And then, of course, um, as you all know, I'm a big fan of mindfulness, and mindfulness is so beneficial in so many ways. And certainly during a pandemic, the temp- pandemic brain and pandemic body, this is a great time to start to get into it, right? And this begins with very deliberate breathing, just in and out. It can be with whatever we're doing, we could be reading a, a book to our child and practicing mindfulness at the same time, being with our child, immersed in Dr. Seuss, breathing in deeply and breathing out deeply. Because when we breathe in deeply with, with intention, it's an immediate reset, bringing the mind back into the body. So it brings us out of, out of what if I don't get my job back. What if my partner doesn't get my job back? What if I don't find a partner? What if uh, the kids don't go back to school in the fall? Or if they do, what if it's twice a week and I don't have childcare? What if I can't get childcare? What if childcare closes? You know, what if, what if, what if? That deep breathing brings us right back into our body. The mind and body are, are one together. And we have an immediate reduction in anxiety. Even if it's just brief, 
We have an immediate reduction in anxiety. And the other thing, you know, during this pandemic with the world closed, now just starting to open up, and with kids home and learning online or, with, you know, college students home or college students without jobs now because that, that those are tough. If we have, you know, time to walk with our young adult or whatever, be mindful. And you know, this time is going to go. It's going to go. It might feel so stressful right now, and it is. And also, you know, we're having kids at home when they wouldn't have been. Um, of course, now it's summer, so they would have been anyway. Embrace it. You know, embrace this time. Be mindful. If everybody's home and a partner wasn't home and now he is or she is, you know, to take some time, be mindful, be in that moment and um, enjoy them. In fact, it's very important to get dressed in the morning, which I know would you know sound ridiculous pre-pandemic. But now in the pandemic, that's not so ridiculous because it gets so easy to just stay in our jammies or sweatpants when we are jumping onto a Zoom meeting for work. And as long as we have you know, we're dressed nicely from the top up. No one knows. That's not good for the mind, though. Pandemic mind um, gets kind of stuck in that. And if we, you know, haven't kind of showered, just run a brush through our hair or whatever, uh, we're not going to feel as good as if we actually got dressed as if we were going to work. Showered, got dressed, you know, shave if that's what you do, makeup if that's what you do. Do that like you would if you were going into the office or school or whatever you're doing. Um, and you will feel a whole lot better. And I'll just remind you that, um, you know, there, there are obviously a lot of def- different definitions of stress out there, though they're all, they're, most are very similar. The one that I, you know, live by is stress is wanting the present moment to be something other than it is. And of course, you all know how, what a favorite, I, you know, what a favorite Oprah is for me. She's just one of my total faves. One of my dearest friends, she just isn't aware, and she says, all stress comes from resisting what is. And then, of course, you have the famous psychoanalyst, Carl Jung, who said, that which we resist will persist. So this is history in the making here. You know, the, we're in a pandemic, and, uh, you know, 2020 will obviously go down as you know, the year of the COVID or Corona, right? So this is what it is. These are the cards we've been dealt for right now. And we can either, you know, resist it, you know, and make ourselves all stressed out and nuts, or we can learn, learn to ride the wave and, you know, kind of surf it, right? And, you know, kind of take what we want and leave the rest, you know, take the bennies, take the benefits from some of this. And then we can work around shifting our thinking, around um, being stressed out versus being excited about certain things, being aware of the mind-body connection and all the things we can do that we have the autonomy and agency to change and to follow through with those things. And then lastly, to remember, you know, progress, not perfection. These times are hard right now. These times are hard. And if there was ever, if there were ever a time to cut ourselves some slack, it's now. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.